Welcome to episode 14 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Today's show features two underdogs, gas stoves, and the Jacksonville Jaguars. But before we get to that, a couple of housekeeping items. Number one, if you have any questions for the Q&A section, please do send them in. I think I answered all the ones I got the first time I asked. I need replenishing, so please do send away. Second, I've had a few people ask me how they can ensure that the color supplement appears to them on their phone in color. And I thought we covered this. At least I tried. If you don't have a phone with malleable logarithmic casing or a pentametric fan, and if you don't have any means of obtaining six hydrocoptic marzal veins, you can't listen in color. It will be to you in black and white. I'm sorry I can't do anything about it. We tried experimenting with the non-reversible tremai pipe, but the differential girdle spring just didn't work, and there's not much I can do about it. I started the first ever episode of this podcast by talking about how peculiar it was that in 2022, we lived through a month-long freakout over Joe Rogan, that despite the intensity of the hysteria, died out almost instantly. For a few weeks, Rogan represented a threat to all that was good and holy. If he was allowed to keep podcasting, people would die. Democracy would wither. America would disappear into the sea. And then it just went away. All of a sudden, nobody seemed to care. It was as if somebody had flicked a switch. I'm going to return to this theme today because I've just watched another example of this type of entirely contrived and wholly temporary panic. And if anything, this one was much, much worse. This week, the Biden administration announced that it was considering a ban on the sale of new gas stoves. Specifically, the commissioner of the Consumer Product Safety Commission said that a ban was, quote, on the table, and then insisted that, quote, products that can't be made safe can be banned. And then after that, gave about as many signals as it's possible to give to suggest that the commission was, in fact, considering such a ban. He responded to a tweet from a Bloomberg reporter that read, the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission says a ban on gas stoves is on the table by saying, thank you for excellent journalism, and by confirming the commission would consider all approaches to regulation. He wrote a tweet confirming that any changes would only apply to new stoves, which again was consistent with Bloomberg's report, 
and then he linked not once but twice to a story in Curbed on which the title was Are Gas Stoves the New Cigarettes? and the subtitle was A Federal Ban Maybe in the Cards. And what happened next? I'll tell you. All of a sudden, upon the instant, as if by magic, this became a national topic of conversation. A moral imperative. A stumbling block to progress that we must overcome if we wish to move into the sunlit uplands that we've all been promised. Politicians who had never thought about this before and who happily cook on gas stoves themselves, instantly became crusaders, zealots, activists, professors, who found themselves wearily explaining to the revanchist holdouts that the time had come for change, and that anyone who disagreed didn't care about public health. It was astonishing. And then... After a couple of days in which the idea was ferociously debated, including by me, the Consumer Product Safety Commission nonchalantly announced that it had no intention to ban gas stoves after all, but intended only to study potential improvements. And in doing this, it pulled out the rug from under the people who had said it was imperative to do so. At which point, of course, many of those people switched seamlessly away from suggesting that it was good that the Consumer Product Safety Commission had said that it was going to ban gas stoves, as reported in the press, to explaining that when they'd said they wanted a ban too, what they really meant was that they wanted better ventilation and then, of course, implying that those who'd been bothered by the idea and by their own words were conspiracy theorists or idiots. This is the side of progressivism that I find the most alarming. And, by extension, it provokes the side of conservatism that I find the most attractive. As a rule of thumb, you should be deeply suspicious of anyone who picks up a cause and 10 minutes later sounds as if they've been fighting in favor of it for 50 years. Sometimes, conservatives can hold on to old things or old positions for too long. I noted this in my book of a few years ago, and I made some suggestions as to which ideas they could consider jettisoning. But if I had to pick between being too cautious about destroying or changing things and too enthusiastic about destroying or changing things, you can give me the Chestertonian caution every time. Aside from anything else, the latter approach makes you look impressionable, excitable, and ridiculous. Take by way of example... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a member of Congress from New York. Ocasio-Cortez has had an account on Twitter since September 2010. From then until January 10th, 2023, that's 
more than 10 years, a decade, Ocasio-Cortez had never once tweeted about stoves. Not once. The word stove did not appear on her feed. It didn't even appear in a quotidian context. She didn't talk about cooking on one, although she does, or having to replace one or repair one, nothing. Her feed was stoveless. And then, on January 10th, 2023, she tweeted twice about stoves. First to Ronnie Jackson, who was Donald Trump's doctor while he was president. She said, Did you know that ongoing exposure to NO2 from gas stoves is linked to reduced cognitive performance? And to someone less prominent, she said, The way we're handling it in New York City isn't to force people to switch what they already have. Folks, folks, can keep their appliances and new buildings in New York City will have gas-free stoves. As for federally, any proposal from the CPSC would go through a quite lengthy review and input process. The best way I can describe this shift from never mentioning stoves in any circumstance to tweeting about stoves is as if Ocasio-Cortez had been updated to the latest version of the software. Ocasio-Cortez version 1.0.567, now with anti-gas stove functionality. The same was true of Scott Wiener, a state legislator in California who's hyperactive on Twitter. Wiener's had a Twitter account since March 2009, for nearly 14 years. And during those 14 years, he also never mentioned stoves once. Yesterday, though, he tweeted, Gas stoves are toxic to people's health. They cause asthma in children, cardiac problems, and other disease. They need to be phased out. Your update to Scott Wiener has now been installed. Now, it's tempting to go into a deep dive here and to explain why what Wiener and co. were saying was ridiculous on the merits. But really... There's just not much point, because this was never actually about the merits. It wasn't based on anything concrete at all. It was Calvin Ball. It was an insta-crusade, during which all the justifications were marshaled after the fact, and then dropped as soon as the need to wield them disappeared. And the truth is, you can behave like that in any direction. If they had wanted to, the people who for a brief period in time were going after gas stoves, while they thought there was a plan to ban them, could with equal vigour and equal consternation have gone after electric stoves instead. So Richard Trumker, the head of the Consumer Product Safety Commission, said that products that can't be made safe can be banned. Well, should we wish to, we could easily apply that principle to electric stoves. For example, per a study conducted in 2020 by the National Fire Protection Association, households that use electric ranges 
have a higher risk of cooking fires and associated losses than those using gas ranges. Although 60% of households cook with electricity, 4 out of 5, that's 80%, ranges or cooktops involved in reported cooking fires were powered by electricity. The rate of reported fires per million households was 2.6 times higher with electric ranges. The civilian fire death rate per million households was 3.4 times higher with electric ranges. The civilian fire injury rate per million households was 4.8 times higher with electric ranges than in households using gas ranges. The average fire dollar loss per household was 3.8 times higher in households with electric ranges. Now, I bring this up not to criticize electric stoves. I just don't care. I bring it up to invite you to consider just how easy it would have been to have used these statistics as a justification to ban electric ranges. Just one tweak to the impetus. A rumor perhaps that there was a plan to ban electric stoves that had been endorsed by all the right people. And all that indignation and puritanical fervor could, if the same people had decided to go in the other direction, have been peeled off and glued to some other facts instead. And those who disagreed with banning electric stoves could have been told that they don't care about house fires. That they don't care about the lives of children. That they don't care about burn victims. There was even a ready-made race angle. According to the New York State Department of Health, black Americans make up just 13% of the U.S. population, but they represent 25% of individuals killed in residential fires. And what has New York done? Well, here's AOC. The way we are handling in New York City isn't to force people to switch what they already have. Folks can keep their appliances and new buildings in New York City will have gas-free stoves, which means electric, which means a higher rate of fire death, which disproportionately affects black Americans, which is racist. Uh, it may sound churlish. It's certainly not my view. I don't see the world in that way. But is there anyone in America who doubts how those facts would have been combined if the aim had been to remove electric stoves instead of gas stoves? Electric stoves would have been deemed racist, and so would the people who wish to force Americans to use them by banning the alternative. The whole thing was a game. And worse yet, it was a game whose participants routinely refused to accept that there are any trade-offs in life, or that in most cases, those trade-offs are best determined and resolved by consumer choice. The correct response when hearing about an idea such as this one is to say, that sounds ridiculous. It is not to act as if one has received one's marching orders and starts scrabbling around for one's talking points. 
Nor is it to ask the people who have declined to jump on the bandwagon, why do you care anyway? For a start, that is a transparent rhetorical cheat move. I didn't care. Until this week. When Trumpka, at the Consumer Product Safety Commission, made his comment until it was widely reported in the press that we were about to see a ban on new gas stoves, and until all of the people who are now pointing out that it's not true after all endorsed the move and explained why it was imperative. I didn't care at all. On the contrary, I was quite happy living in a world in which I could have my gas stove and others could have their electrical stoves, and we could all get on with our lives. Why do you care is not a question that the people who are pushing to change the status quo get to ask. It's incumbent upon them to answer questions, not the people who are minding their own business. That aside, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Why do I care? I care because it looked as if, in a spasm of delirium, we were moving toward a ban on one of the most useful appliances in my house that sits in the most popular room in my house and that is responsible for the cooking of the food I eat to keep me and my family alive. This happens a lot. An activist group goes after light bulbs literally the devices that bring light into the home when it's dark outside, or toilets and showers and water heaters, literally the devices that keep us clean, and now stoves, or not, as the case may be. And then they say, why do you care? (laughs) How could I not care? It's my house, I live here. Is there anything I'm supposed to care about more? Of course it's got a reaction. Why do you care is a bad question for the people who are trying to change things to ask. A good question, but a question they ought to ask themselves, is why did you jump on that bandwagon? Why did you suddenly decide this was important? Why didn't you wait for a while and do a little research of your own before endorsing it emphatically. What's lacking in your life that requires you to become a voice for hire in the pursuit of ideas you've never even considered before? Answer those questions, and we might start to get somewhere. My guest today is Jonathan Adler, who is the Johann Verhey Memorial Professor of Law at Case Western Reserve University School of Law. Jonathan, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. Great to be here. So I just did a segment on the semi-announced but then officially denied plan for the Consumer Product Safety Commission to ban or consider banning at some point the future purchase of gas stoves. And, well, I I think the very idea that the federal government has the power to decide what stove I'm allowed to have in my house is completely nuts. 
Now, obviously, I think that politically, as a political preference, but I'm always keen to distinguish between my personal views and the meaning of the Constitution as it's actually written and the law as it's actually written, because quite obviously, they don't always line up. And I just cannot square the enumerated powers doctrine, which grants the federal government only a handful of powers, with the claim that if it wanted to, the federal government could ban the sale of gas stoves. As usual, this power seems to be claimed from within the Commerce Clause, but the Commerce Clause was not supposed to be some general enabling act. And yet, as far as I can see, the Consumer Product Safety Commission treats it that way by prohibiting certain products from being sold at all. Not imports and exports, not disputes between states, not even someone in one state buying something from another state. In effect, the Consumer Product Safety Commission utilizes police powers of the sorts that are reserved to the states. I think that's crazy and unconstitutional. Am I wrong? <laughs> well, it depends. Um, uh, like uh, your average law professor, um, I think it, it depends what what we mean by is it unconstitutional? Um, does it stretch the powers that were written in the Constitution as they were understood at the time? Um, probably. Um, does it stretch the meaning of the Commerce Clause power as it was understood for much of the nation's history? Um, likely so again. Does it stretch uh, the bounds of the power as federal courts and Congress and so on recognize it today? No. In fact, it's actually a, a more limited assertion of authority than some of the things Congress routinely considers and federal agencies routinely do. So, you know, it kind of depends what our frame of reference is and, and in terms of what we mean when we say, is it unconstitutional? Okay. So... Obviously, the Commerce Clause is open to some interpretation because yes. it doesn't list everything the government's allowed to do and not allowed to do. And under our system of government, however you structure things, one of the branches is ultimately going to decide what it means. That could be the courts, or in their absence, if you don't like judicial review or you want judicial review to be rare, it would be Congress deciding for itself. But there is a limit or it wouldn't be in there. Yes. Thomas Jefferson, who didn't write the Constitution but had views on it, wrote in 1803, it's a quote I go back to a lot, that I had rather ask an enlargement of power from the nation where it is found necessary than to assume it by a construction which would make our powers boundless. And then he says, our peculiar security is in the possession of a written Constitution. Let us not make it a blank paper by construction. So I don't think Jefferson got his wish when it comes to the Commerce Clause. I think we have a pretty much blank paper. I think however the goals attained, whatever logic's recruited to get there, we end up with this sophistry that allows the federal government empowered to regulate commercial activity. So let's just take this one by one. Sure. Going back to the beginning, when Jefferson's writing this in 1803, is the Consumer Product Safety Commission able to regulate or ban stoves in people's homes? Well, well, so ban stoves in people's homes, certainly not. Ban the sale of stoves 
Generally, at the founding, almost certainly not. Ban the sale of stoves in interstate commerce or crossing state lines? Probably not. But, you know, it's worth, it's worth unpacking, right? So, so let's, you know, we should start with the text. May not always be fashionable to do, but, but certainly I think you and I both agree that, that we have a written constitution for a reason. Its writtenness is a feature of that constitution. Um, the fact that the constitution is written is an aspect of the constitution that I would argue indicates that its meaning is to be tethered by that text as compared to, say, you know, I don't know, the British Constitution, which is not written. And the, so the language does fix and constrain the range of meanings. So we start with power to regulate commerce among the several states. So a couple things that we can say right off the bat is that one commerce is to be distinguished from things that are not commerce. I think at the time of the founding, it's pretty clear that commerce was not merely distinguished from things that were non-economic but even distinguished from things that were non-commercial, so manufacturing, agriculture, not commerce. And then commerce among the states to be distinguished from commerce, which is not among the states. And so uh, at the time, that was understood to distinguish between interstate commerce from that commerce, which is wholly conducted within a state. And the first time the Supreme Court is asked to look at this question, a case called Gibbons versus Ogden, which related to the ability of Congress to license uh, steamships in interstate waters. And there the court talks about how these, this, this language has meaning and is designed to distinguish that which can be regulated from that which cannot, and that both commerce and among the states do some work. So that's one thing that we want to identify right off the bat from the text. The other part, and this, you know, makes things a bit fuzzier than, than we perhaps might like, is that we have um, the Necessary and Proper Clause, which says that Congress can do those things which are necessary and proper to the execution of the foregoing powers. And the idea being that there are some things necessary to effectuate commerce among the states, or to effectuate regulation of commerce among the several states, that Congress can also do. And much of the mischief, historically, with the exercise of the Commerce Clause power is really mischief with what is or is not necessary and proper to the regulation of commerce. But I think, you know, even if we view those somewhat elastically, we can get to justifications for the regulation of transporting things across state lines, particularly if there is some safety or other related concern about the transportation of them across state lines. Very hard to get to regulation of wholly intrastate commerce, right, buying and selling of, say, gas stoves, and even harder to get to the mere possession or installation of gas stoves, which is important to recognize is actually an additional step in terms of the assertion of federal authority, that it's one thing for the federal government to say, we can regulate the buying and selling. It is still yet another thing to say, we can regulate the installation or even the maintenance and possession of of the thing, but it does um, say that. Uh, oh, <laughs> the government does that all the time. But I mean, it's, but it's important to recognize that that when a member of Congress says we want to regulate the buying and selling of something in at all, you know, in all circumstances, that's a step beyond regulation of buying and selling in interstate commerce. And then the regulation of possession is still yet another step beyond the regulation of the buying and selling. Okay, so 
I suppose my overarching question here is how we get from A to Z. So we in 1803, and we're reading Thomas Jefferson's letter, and we're punching the air saying, fantastic, we have this constitution that prevents somebody from telling me what sort of stove I can have in my house. Now, over uh, the next couple of centuries, a lot of things change. And they do raise questions that were not there at the time of the founding. And they do require different analogs and logical chains than might have existed in 1803. For example, the internet is invented and spreads across the country. And suddenly you could send messages between states in split seconds. And people say, "Mm, is that commerce? And I think there's a really strong case that the answer is yes. But stoves have not changed that much. And if anything, they were a lot more dangerous at the time because there was less ventilation and there was more fire. And yet you described this evolution of the Commerce Clause as it would apply even to something that has remained the same, such as a stove or even a, a rifle. How did that happen? And to what extent is it legitimate? Well, so I'm like, just as an initial point, I do think sometimes we we overestimate the extent to which changes in the world justified the changes that I'm about to describe. So if you go back and read this case, Gibbons versus Ogden from 1824, written by Chief Justice John Marshall, you know he's talking about interstate waterways, and he's talking about the distinction of authority between the federal government, which has the authority to regulate the interstate commerce aspects of steamships crossing rivers, but acknowledging that basic health and safety laws, quarantine laws, inspection laws, all sorts of laws that will affect and act upon steamships are nonetheless the exclusive province of the state. And he talks a lot about how the the streams of commerce enter into states. You know, it's not that the federal government can only regulate at the border. It's regulating on interstate commerce where it is interstate commerce, but we still can engage in this line drawing. It's just a bit more um, sophisticated than saying it occurs only at the border. So, you know, we, we, while the internet does change things and, and other types of economic and, and technological changes change things, we shouldn't be too quick to assume that that justifies the expansion. So is it just empire building? Or is it just government expanding over time? Well, some of it. So, so historically, one d- debate that was had, which I think affected this expansion, is whether or not we should view the power to regulate commerce in in a purposivist way in, in with an eye towards what the reason is the government is regulating or to what extent it should be more formalistic so there's a case from the turn of the prior century called champion versus ames where the federal government decides it wants to uh, ban the interstate sale and transportation of lottery tickets because they were immoral and and you know we don't want people purchasing them and i guess being contaminated by uh, lottery tickets and the supreme court upholds that in an opinion by Oliver Wendell Holmes which itself should make you be concerned when it comes to interpreting the constitution where Holmes basically says look we don't care why congress is doing this congress is saying you can't buy and sell these things in interstate commerce so you can't and the fact that the reason Congress is doing this has no commercial purpose uh, is mere, merely about the belief that lottery tickets is immoral is irrelevant. Yeah, so that's an important step because it basically, in a sense, says you know Congress was given a hammer 
And as, so long as Congress is swinging the hammer, they can swing it, whether or not they're trying to drive a nail, right? whether they're using that hammer for its, its intended purpose. And so that was a, a step that I think is significant. And just to be clear here then, so Congress needs that case in order to have any chance at being legitimately able to ban gas stoves because they're bad for your health, right? Because that's not an intrinsically commercial question, your health. Correct. Correct. So, I mean, so, you know, right. So, you know, if Congress were banning gas stoves because, you know, there was something inherently dangerous about the gas stove in transport, right, that they, that they could like blow up when they're on a train or something, we might say, well, gosh, that's about maintaining the safety of interstate commerce, right? We don't want trains blowing up. But, but of course, that's in fact not the case with gas stoves. A gas stove that is not connected to, you know, doesn't, doesn't have a, a gas hookup is the paperweight as safe as any other clump, you know, box of metal. And so we would say, so any purpose that Congress has a, that, that relates to the safety of the object when installed requires a rationale like champion versus Ames, where we don't care about the reason. Uh, so that, that's a significant step. The other significant step I would argue is that Congress in the, in the early 20th century is beginning to regulate for a wide range of economic reasons, concerned about corporate power and the concentration of power, concerned about how the exercise of economic power itself might affect commerce, as well as the disruption of how economic disruption, such as like from labor unrest, from strikes and the like, can affect commerce. And the court decides that when Congress is acting upon these broader economic systems or things that could disrupt commerce, that should be seen as necessary and proper to the regulation of commerce. So there's a case called NLRB versus Jones and Laughlin Steel, where the court says, you know, here you have this, this massive steel conglomerate. It is itself this massive entity that, ex that extends across multiple states that is necessary to ensuring there is steel for the American economy. And if there is labor unrest at one of Jones and Laughlin's facilities, or let alone throughout the entire company, that'll disrupt the production of steel, which will then disrupt the commerce in steel throughout the economy, it will have a substantial effect on interstate commerce, and therefore Congress can use the commerce power combined with the necessary and proper clause to regulate labor management relations at a giant steel conglomerate. And then over time, we, we, the court then decides, well, if it can do it with the really big company, why can't it do it with little companies too? Because when you add them together, they aggregate into this same large effect. And then Congress forgets that the necessary and proper clause was doing some of the work. And so we then get to the point, which I think most of your listeners are familiar with, where if something's economic, then Congress can regulate it anywhere. And so it's not merely sale anymore. It's not merely, let alone interstate sale. It's is this economic because we can aggregate it. And once we can aggregate it, it has a substantial effect on commerce. And if it has a substantial effect on commerce, well, it must, it must be something that Congress can regulate as part of regulating commerce. I mean, that's the, that's the way the power grew. So if I decide that I dislike a decision made by the 
federal government as relates to a particular consumer product. And I want to turn the transaction in question into a purely intrastate transaction. So let's say, let's make it simple for the sake of argument. And I set myself up as a carpenter. I buy some land. I cut the trees down myself. And I produce a consumer product that is on the market only for Floridians. And the government comes in and says, nope, you can't sell that even within your own state. Are they relying on the idea that by producing my wood products, I am materially affecting the aggregate supply of wood products? Or is there some other means by which they would assert that power? That's pretty much it, right? So that the idea, um, that, that's pretty much the idea. I mean, the case that people may be familiar with, which which began this process, but is actually less expansive than than current doctrine, if you can imagine it, is this case Wickard versus Filburn. So there's this farmer, Roscoe Filburn. He's growing wheat on his own land, and the federal government passes uh, the Agricultural Adjustment Act. It is a measure designed to keep wheat price prices up by restricting the supply of wheat and restricting the supply by by limiting how much farmers can grow. And the idea being, right, if you have less wheat on the market, then wheat prices will stay high. And like a lot of New Deal legislation, it was motivated by some <laughs> antediluvian notions about how economies work, but but fine. The, the, the theory was the government is regulating commerce, interstate commerce in wheat, in particular regulating the price of wheat, it can only be effective at regulating the price of wheat if it can control supply. And if we let folks like Roscoe Filburn exempt themselves from the market by producing their own, well, that will it would prevent the government from being able to control the price by restricting supply because portions of the market will have opted out. It's worth noting that that I think one of the reasons the Supreme Court found it somewhat easy to uphold this measure is because Roscoe Filburn wasn't just some farmer growing wheat for his family. The phrase home consumption appears in, the, uh, in, in a lot of these discussions, but he wasn't growing wheat to bake bread for his family. He was growing wheat to feed to his dairy cows. He was actually a dairy farmer. He was, you know, the wheat was a, a, a factor input for him because it had to feed his dairy cows so that they could produce milk. And if all of the dairy farmers in the country decided to grow their own wheat, it certainly would have undercut the federal government's mistaken policy of trying to control wheat prices. That idea, though, that if we let somebody opt out of the market that prevents the federal government from regulating the market comprehensively, then becomes this more modern idea that, to take a real case, if a a woman named Diane Ronson and another woman named Angel Raish want to agree among themselves that one of them will grow marijuana for the other to consume for medicinal purposes, and no commercial transaction takes place, uh, and the federal government stipulated to this in the, in the litigation that, that followed, the federal government says, that, no, we can nonetheless prohibit the production of that marijuana, the transfer of that marijuana, and the possession of that marijuana, because that is necessary to being able to maintain a nationwide prohibition on the sale of marijuana. And the Supreme Court upheld that in a case called Gonzalez versus Raish, you know, kind of taking this notion of from Wickard versus Filburn, which was arguably about the regulation of prices in interstate markets, but applying it more broadly to this idea that if the federal government's trying to regulate a market, or in this case, prohibit a market, it can reach 
any instance of possession of the underlying product, because that's the only way to ensure that the comprehensive scheme is effective. Do you think that case would come out differently now? I hope it would come out differently today. I certainly think that there are more justices on the court that recognize that it wasn't merely Wickard versus Filburn replayed. It was actually an extension of Wickard versus Filburn because drug prohibition is not about controlling the price of a commodity in interstate, mar- interstate markets. But, but we'll see. I mean, the court has not considered cases in which you have seen equally or perhaps even more egregious assertions of federal authority. So one of my favorites is a prosecution of members of an Amish sect here in Ohio. It's this bizarre case where some members of the sect went to the house of these other members of the sect. I can't remember who were the dissidents and who were not to cut off the beard of the other folks because within this sect, that was a way of of punishing the other folks. And they were prosecuted among for, among other reasons, because the shears that were used to cut the beard had previously crossed state lines. And to me, that's, you know, that's, that's an, an idea that I refer to as commerce as contagion. The idea that yeah. once something has been in interstate commerce, it is permanently infected with this, with federal jurisdiction because of that prior involvement in commerce and then can be used to reach any and all activities that that object is used for. And, and that to me is just, is just insane. Um, I mean, it's a literal police power in that case. It is, so long as Congress writes the statute properly. I mean, it basically says to Congress, write the statute so that you have what we call a jurisdictional element, right? So that requires the prosecutor to prove there was a thing used that went, that traveled in interstate commerce and you can reach anything. Yeah, it's... it's. But on that rationale, the federal government could presumably involve itself in every single murder or battery case involving a firearm. Yes. Well, I mean, I guess maybe if you 3D print the firearm. You're not making me feel better, just for the record. Now. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> now, the statutory question, the yep. secondary question, let's ignore for a moment the constitutional limits placed on the federal government and assume that everything it does is kosher. The executive branch has no inherent powers in this area and needs to be given any powers it exercises by Congress. How much power has Congress actually delegated to the Consumer Product Safety Commission? Um, well, it's, it, it gave it a bunch of power, and then it conditioned that power in ways that make the Consumer Product Safety Commission um, a less powerful agency than a lot of the other ones that we're often familiar with. So, you know, the commission's, the re- what's relevant for, for our discussion is the commission has the authority to promulgate rules about what sorts of products can be sold. So Congress has only purported to assert authority over the sale. So, you know, when the Consumer Product Safety Commission comes along and, you know, bans a certain sort of crib or a certain sort of toy, and it banned, um, you know, lawn darts or whatever, it doesn't make it illegal to possess those things. It makes it illegal to sell, to offer them for sale. And so, you know, it's not as intrusive as, as would an actual prohibition on possession be, which, you know, we see in, perhaps in the firearms context and other sorts of contexts. The Consumer Product Safety Commission, when it's going to consider banning or regulating a, a consumer product, it is actually required to go through 
a process that's actually a little bit more rigorous than the traditional regulatory process under the Administrative Procedure Act. It's required to make certain sorts of findings. It's supposed to consider whether or not there are ways of addressing the the safety risk it is concerned about without prohibiting the sale of something. So generally, the Consumer Product Safety Commission is first supposed to think about things like, you know, can we put a, can we, can we smack a label on, on this product? Can we warn consumers with packaging or information? Or can we, can we require a slight design change? And you're supposed to, cons- you're supposed to engage in a cost-benefit analysis that actually weighs the risks that you're trying to eliminate against the consequences of of doing without the product. And courts uh, have held the Consumer Product Safety Commission to account when it hasn't done that. So the, the case that, that some folks might be familiar with um, from, from several years ago, the Consumer Product Safety Commission got concerned about these really powerful magnets that are used in toys. They're used in some children's toys. They, they also, I mean, you know, I have friends and you may have friends that have these set of like these, these little balls that are highly magnetic and they're like a fidget toy for your desk. And, you know, there was concern that, um, you know, if children ingest these, they can be very dangerous. There are cases of harm from, uh, of kids ingesting them. And so the Consumer Product Safety Commission issued recalls for like, I don't know, Polly Pockets or something that had these magnets in them. But wanted to go beyond that and wanted to actually ban them altogether. And they were sued back around 2015, 2016, somewhere in that ballpark. And a federal court said, you know, you didn't, you didn't do the analysis that was required and threw it out that, you know, there are various contexts in which these magnets are exceedingly useful. The one that I think of is, you know, if you want to, uh, if you have a stylus for a tablet and you, and you don't want to lose it. Right. Um, having a really powerful magnet to keep that stylus attached to your iPad or your Microsoft Surface or what have you is 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 valuable. Uh, it's very useful. Doesn't endanger children. Is not likely to be ingested when it's in that form and so on. Right. There there are lots of re- things short of banning that the use of that magnet, which could be done. So the Consumer Product Safety Commission, I think, has been held to account by that. I happen to think, from what I know about gas stoves, had they tried to ban the sale of new gas stoves altogether, they would have had a hard time because what are the alternatives? Well, alternatives are things like electric ranges and they have their own safety concerns. I know you noted on on NRO, I guess it was either today or yesterday. I mean, the data on fires and the like suggests that the electric alternatives are often as if not more dangerous or at least can be. And that if we're concerned about gas stoves, the Consumer Product Safety Commission could require warning, you know, more prominent warnings to consumers about the importance of running your fan when you're, when you're cooking or about how they can be installed and so on. All right. So that's the courts. That's the courts upholding the statutory requirements and limiting the commission to its role. My final question has to do with the public comment period yep. that attends to any proposed rule. You write a lot about administrative law. This is a question I've always wanted. Do those comments periods make any difference at all? Or do you essentially just get a whole load of C-SPAN viewers who obsess over them? Both. 
I mean, these days, you know, if 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 a comment period is or if a, if a regulation is really controversial, you know, you, you, people are sending in form postcards, right? Activist groups, you know, distribute. It's not even postcards; you can do it by email now. But you know, kind of distribute form letters for folks to to submit. I've seen rulemakings where you have comments written in crayon by students and uh, you know, elementary school students. You get all sorts of folks commenting. But the comment period matters for two things. One, you know, as a legal matter. Agencies are required to substantively address and respond to substantive issues raised in the comment period. So, you know, the the C-SPAN viewers' comment might not require a substantive response, but the comments that are submitted by various trade associations and professional organizations and think tanks and so on typically do raise issues. So the agency can't kind of Close it can't close its eyes to the downsides of its proposal, and the Consumer Product Safety Commission, because it's required to actually consider certain sorts of trade-offs explicitly, is really stuck to you know focus you know responding to those sorts of comments. You know, other sorts of agencies can sometimes say, well, you know, we thought about this, but we don't really care because it's not within our purview. But but agencies are required to respond, and and you do, and it's easy, right? It's much easier for a court to say we're throwing this regulation out because you ignored substantive comments than for the court to say, we're throwing this out because we, we, we think it's stupid policy. The other thing, though, is that the comment period, you know, is, creates a, a focal point politically. You know, when a rule is being proposed, when people are commenting, that often raises the salience of, of what the agency is considering and it c- can create political pushback, right? It requires the agency to to press pause for a period of time and, and, and before it acts. And that creates opportunities for members of Congress and, and, and political actors to put political pressure on the agency. So I think the comment period matters for both of those reasons, both, both legally, because if the agency is ignoring something that it's going to have a hard time addressing, that gets raised in the comment period. And then politically, it, it creates the opportunity to you know, generate opposition to what the agency is thinking about doing. All right. Well, that one did cheer me up a little bit. So we should probably end on this optimistic note before I discover <laughs> something else terrible <laughs> that's happening in, well, in I mean, Washington. Great, I mean, in this case, it kind of even happened before the comment period. I mean, I think it's worth noting, right? I mean, that that the fact that agencies like the CPSC know that they ultimately have to do stuff in public means that when they propose something that really uh, outrages a significant portion of the public, they hear about it and they often back off and and here yeah. they did. No, I think so too. And if you look at how this went, there is a, I think, certain possibility that this was a trial balloon <laughs> floated by one member of the commission that was then knocked down by another having uh, watched the public reaction. So sure. I guess that's ultimately how the system works. Jonathan Adler, thank you so much for joining the podcast. My pleasure. Now it's time for the regularly scheduled Jacksonville Jaguars update on the Charles C. W. Cook podcast, part of this week's color supplement. If you haven't got your phone tuned into color, make sure you fix that. I have with me here in the studio for the first time ever, my first ever in-studio guest, John Ekdahl, who is a fellow Jacksonville Jaguars fan, Jacksonville Jaguars expert, some might say. Maybe the Jacksonville Jaguars expert. I'm not sure many would say that, but yeah. <laughs> well, one just did. And uh, John and I were at the game on Saturday, in which the Jaguars beat the Titans 22-16. John, at what point in that game did you start to believe they were going to make the playoffs? 
Uh, I, I never really wavered because this team has, uh, in the last seven or eight weeks, really kind of stumbled in the first half and then thrown it together towards the end. So I, I was never in my head really out of it, but um, it, it did start to get a sort of a sort of a bit dicey towards the fourth quarter. Towards the fourth quarter, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They played fifty-seven of sixty minutes down. Yeah, but they have they've had remarkable comebacks in the fourth quarter, uh, going back the last six or seven weeks with the Cowboys, with the Ravens. There's been a number of them. Okay, so I basically didn't believe until the end, and you kept saying, "This is what they do. This is what they do." And at one point, you got very, very optimistic and started saying, "They're almost taunting them into making a mistake." <laughs> you know, when they were down ten points. But it is a different team. So how long have you supported the Jags? Uh, I would say 13 years or so now. Okay. So I have supported the Jags for exactly five years. So I started on a massive high. I didn't support them because they were on a roll. It was a coincidence. But they were on a massive high, and I've been hugely disappointed ever since. Yeah, it's been a rough slog for the 13 years I've been a fan. It's uh... Yeah, they haven't been good for 13 years except the same season, that 2017. Yeah. No, no one would accuse us of jumping on a bandwagon at this point. Right. But now they're in the playoffs. For the first time since 2017. For the second time since... When? Uh, God, we're going back to probably the David Garrard era. Um, a long time ago. 2008, something like that. 2008. And now they have the Chargers in the wildcard game in Jacksonville on Saturday... What do you expect? I expect the crowd to be at the level that we saw it at, which was something I had never experienced in all the times I've been at that stadium because there hasn't been a whole lot to cheer for. But I, I, don't, I don't think the Chargers travel that well, certainly not as well as the Titans would. So I expect the same kind of upbeat crowd. They were really raucous and rowdy. and um, yeah, there were about 500 Titans fans in that stadium out of 70,000. Yeah, I, it was, I, I think I counted just in my head maybe two dozen that I saw in person the whole night, which, you know, for a Jaguars friend, this is, this is very much a destination kind of uh, NFL experience where an out-of-town team, certainly towards the end of the year when it gets cold in the north, um, you're like, hey, let's go down to Jacksonville for a December game. And so you typically see a fair amount of out-of-town fans, and we saw effectively none. Uh, last Saturday. So what do you think? The, can they beat the Chargers? They can beat the Chargers. I think that they're really even evenly matched teams. Um, I, I think it can be a bit of a coin flip in this game. That's what the betters think. I think it's a point at this, you know, the Chargers are favored by a point at this point. Um, but I'm expecting the same sort of Jaguars experience, which has been a really stupid mistake in the first quarter, probably a fumble. Um, just, you know, head-to-head kind of grind fest for a while and then i expect some insane play towards the end to get us over the top they do make that early mistake i mean it's actually almost a superstition of mine now is that if they make the mistake early i think they're going to win the game they've got it out of their system yeah i'm almost hoping two or three minutes in they're going to turn the ball over so they can (laughs) so okay so let's assume they beat the charges then what can they go further um, it, you know, we're, we're on a bit of a Cinderella ride. I mean, no one expected this team to do this. Even I think the most optimistic Jaguar fan wouldn't, um, wouldn't have seen a run in the playoffs, maybe sneak into the playoffs as a seven seed. I don't think many people had us win, winning the division, but you know, it, 
it's not dissimilar from the 2017 team. They they had 10 wins. This team has nine. No one expected them to do anything. They had Blake Bortles, which everyone which was a running joke on social media. Blake Bortles fact. Yeah. So, you know, you could see a similar kind of ride, and you could also see them, you know, this is farther, as far as they're going to get, and it's just a step forward for Doug Peterson and Trevor Lawrence for, for the next season. But this is the weird thing, is that I am oddly sanguine about the idea of them losing not that i want them to lose i'm stressed about the game already i'm going to be a mess while it's on but if they do win the game you can already see that they're going to be okay next year and in the foreseeable future and i haven't felt like that for a long time i mean i felt like that after 2017 although i knew nothing about football then this is what stability at the head coaching position and having a franchise quarterback gets you is the the uncertainty of going into the next season, which, I mean, we're going to be one of a handful of teams, maybe 10 or 12, that don't have those big, big question marks at quarterback and at head coach. And if you don't have those, you're going you're gonna to go in confident to the next season. So I, you know, I'm with you. I, I'm going to be devastated if they end up losing. But um, the future is really bright in a way that I, I can't remember for this franchise. It is going to be weird, though, if they start being feared by teams and they're on Monday night football and Sunday night football, which, which hasn't been the case. Ever. I mean, yeah. I, you know, it, I read some things today about Hopkins who had, you know, it, it, this has been a thing with Jaguar, uh, the Jaguar franchise for at least 10 years is that they have to overpay these free agents to come here. Cause no one wants to come here because it's dysfunctional and it's, um, it's not viewed as a destination spot. And he's already put out this is, you know, I would like to play for the Jaguars next year. No, I'm not saying that's going to happen. But just the fact that this NFL star has already put that on the board makes me think that there's going to be a bit of a change. Yeah. So about three years ago, just before COVID, I flew into San Francisco. And I was early enough for my event that I went on StubHub and I bought tickets to go see the Yankees play the Giants at what was then AT&T Park is now Oracle Park. And when I got to the security gates, I took my keys and my wallet out of my pocket and I put them in the tray. And my key is a Jaguar's key. I think actually you got me this key when I first moved in. I think I did. And the security guard looked down at it and he said, is that a Jaguar's key? And I said, yes. And he actually laughed in my face in 2018, 2019. But the weird thing now is that people who recognize... Jaguars t-shirt or the key or they just know I'm a Jaguars fan have started saying oh you guys are going to be good or you guys are fun to watch or even I'm rooting for you guys you're my Cinderella team and I've just never experienced this before well I, I think part of it is that and of course we never get primetime games we never get the game of the week and two things happen this season one is that when we played the Cowboys at home we had the entire United States effectively watching the game. It was like 75% of the U.S. market was watching that game. That game was incredible. It ended on a walk-off um, touchdown in overtime against the Cowboys, who you either like the Cowboys or you don't like the Cowboys. There's no middle ground there for most sports fans. And then we had um, this past Saturday's game, which was 8 o'clock game, the only game on, primetime, Saturday night. And they saw Mr. Jacksonville come out for the for the national anthem uh, on an electric guitar. And I, you know, there's um, people love Cinderella underdog stories. And I think this team has really kind of taken on that persona. Yeah. I mean, a friend of ours was saying 
that people will start picking them up now on a bandwagon effect. I think you said to him, it doesn't matter. That's how franchises are built. Oh, sure. You just say, oh, they're good, or they're popular, or they're fun, or they've gone further than they should have done, and we'll... I mean, look at what Mahomes has done to Kansas City. I mean, that was middle of the country, I mean, for a long time. I know Kansas City is a storied franchise, but now they're feared. Everyone's like, oh, who's going to be Kansas City this year? And that's just what some success and a franchise quarterback can do. So the Jags are not going to be Kansas City, right? Ah, oh, man. <laughs> they, they played really well in Kansas City. The, the score, it, it's not reflective in the score, but they were in that game in Kansas City this season. So uh, it's different, different place in the playoffs. But um, I'm not going to say no, but <laughs> I'm not going to say yes either. No, exactly. All right. Well, we will see what happens on Saturday. Saturday. Saturday 8 p.m. And that's all we have time for this week. This has been episode 14. Thank you to my guests, Jonathan Adler and John Ekdahl. Thank you to Gas Stoves. Thank you to the Jacksonville Jaguars. Thank you to all of you for listening. We will see you next week.